fellow sufferers, this is Gene Shepard, and I'm here today to read a short story called Ali Hopnoodle's Haven of Bliss. Now, Ali Hopnoodle's Haven of Bliss first appeared in Playboy, where it was a Playboy Humor Satire Award winner, and it now appears in a book called Wanda Hickey's Night of Golden Memories and Other Disasters, published by Doubleday and Dolphin Press. And now we begin the story, Ollie Hopnoodle's Haven of Bliss. Oh, gosh, I don't think we'll be able to leave for the lake today, my stomach. Instantly, a chorus of self-pitying moans and whimpers drowns out the hapless TV daddy. His TV wife, surrounded by her rosy-cheeked brood and a mountain of tennis rackets, suitcases, water skis, and all the other paraphernalia for an on-the-go family holiday, reaches into her hand-tooled Mexican handbag, pulls out a blue bottle, and hands it to him. Here, take two of these. Well, okay, but it's no use. I've tried everything. Popping the pills into his mouth, he smacks his lips a couple of times and says irritably, Why, these taste just like candy. Why, there's no law that says medicine can't taste good, the family shouts in unison. He swallows doubtfully, waits a moment for the little A's and B's to go to work, and then he breaks into a blinding, ultra-bright smile. Say, you're right. I feel good again. Cheers. All right, then, let's get the show on the road, barks the TV mama, herding the happy family out the door toward the station wagon and vacation land. <laughs> My poor old man, I reflected gratefully as I snapped off the set, was not a TV daddy. For one thing, I have never heard one of them, that is, TV daddies, use anything like the language he employed in moments of stress. Had he been playing the same touching scene, it would have gone something like this. Okay, there's a quick medium shot of a fifth-hand Oldsmobile in the family driveway. A close-up on the old man's face behind the wheel. It is contorted in pain. <gasps> Holy Christ, I'm going to heave. What the hell was in that What was in that red cabbage? A quick pan to my mother. Her hair is in curlers. What do you mean, red cabbage? Them seven beers. Back to the old man, his face now turning green. Now forget the crummy trip. It's off. Then there's a sudden uproar from the kids in the back seat, including me. A quick cut to the old man. What did you say? A shot of his right hand sweeping the back seat like an avenging broom, knocking heads together indiscriminately. We pan to the mother. Here, take Tom's. Old man bellowing, Are you out of your mind? Shot of the door opening quickly as he rushes into the bushes. End of the commercial. Now that true life vacation scene is all too reminiscent of the one we played out every year. The family took a vacation trip by car each and every time the earth completed its laborious cycle around the sun. It usually came in late July or the first two weeks in August, but it makes no difference. It always went the same way. For 14 straight years, our vacations were spent in southern Michigan on the shores of colorful Clear Lake. <laughs> clear lake. It was many things, but the one thing that it wasn't was clear. In fact, it was never clear why we went there, but we did. Such are the vacations of the humble. From June on, five minutes after school let out, my kid brother and I were in a feverish sweat of anticipation about this annual pilgrimage. The old man playing it cool didn't get really heated up until maybe a month or so before the big day. My mother, who incidentally would never have made a TV mama, would begin laying in supplies. As far as I was concerned, the only thing that counted was my meager collection of dime store fishing tackle and my BB gun. For weeks, I gazed at fish hooks, rolled lead sinkers over my tongue, drenched my Sears Roebuck 79-cent reel in three-in-one oil. You know, to be honest, I don't think I could have made it as a TV kid myself. For one thing, there were those pimples. And for another thing, I had a tendency to smell in those days. 
as a result of a lot of time spent in alleys and under porches and crawling through bushes with Schwartz and Flick and Kissel and the motley collection of spotted dogs that always accompany us wherever we went. You know, come to think of it, Schwartz and Flick and Kissel smelled too, which may be why, to one another, none of us smelled. Anyway, at any event, right guard was something we played, not something we squirted on ourselves. About two weeks or so before the big day, the old man would take the olds down to Paswinski's garage for what he called a tune-up, which in our case was purely a cabalistic ritual. It was like fingering a string of beads or burning incense. But southern Michigan was a long way from northern Indiana, and the olds was our only hope. She was a large, hulking, four-door sedan of a peculiar, faded green color that the old man always called goat vomit green. This was his big party joke, you know. He always said it when everybody was eating. What color's your car? He'd say, goat vomit green. The olds had been in the hands of at least four previous owners, all of whom had left their individual marks on body and seat and fender and grill. This week, before vacation, the old man would go into high gear. On Monday of the last week, just after supper, he would make the big phone call. Putting through a long-distance call to Michigan was not something that happened every day in our house. So, of course, the old man had to use a much higher voice than when he was making a local call. Is this long distance? He would shout into the receiver. Operator, I want to put through a long-distance call to Michigan. The rest of us sat in hushed excitement, trepidation, and fear. This was crucial. Would there be a cabin available? The old man played it for all it was worth. Marcellus, Michigan. Ollie Hopnoodle's feed and grain store. I want to talk to Mr. Hopnoodle. He listened intently, then put his hand over the phone and whispered, I can hear him ringing him. Hello, Ollie. Oh, you old son of a bitch. Guess who this is? Right. (laughs) How'd you guess? Hey, we want the green one this year. Yeah, the one on the other side of the outhouse. You did? Hey, that's great. Hey, Ollie put two more holes in the outhouse, he reported in an aside to us. Improvements were coming fast up in Marcellus. Okay, Ollie, see you next week. Save the green one for us. Click. Ah, the die was cast. We were on our way, almost. The week dragged by interminably. But finally it was Saturday night. All day my mother had been cleaning up the house for the two-week hiatus, nailing down the screens, locking the basement windows, packing suitcases, trunks, cardboard boxes, laundry bags, and wicker baskets with everything she could lay her hands on. The old man, who worked a half a day on Saturday, came roaring up the drive, the olds already snarling in defiance over what was about to occur. He charged into the kitchen, his eyes rolling wildly, his very being radiating sparks of excitement. Okay, now, uh, this year we're all going to get up early, and we're going to be on the road by 6 o'clock, 6 a.m., no later. You got it? This time we're going to beat the traffic. My mother, who had heard this all before, continued toiling stoically over her enormous pile of effluvia. When that alarm goes off at 4.30, the old man said to no one in particular, I don't want to hear no griping, okay? Right? Now let's check the list. Far into the night, they went over every can of pork and beans, every slice of bacon, every box of crackers, every undershirt and rubber band, even the jug of of citronella, that foul, fetid liquid, mystically, and by the way, erroneously believed to be effective in warding off mosquitoes of the Michigan variety. Finally, sometime after midnight, the uproar slowly petered out. A few minutes later, the alarm went off, and my kid brother and I leaped out of the sack like shots. This was it. (laughs) From the next bedroom came a muffled curse. For Christ's sake, will you shut off that damn thing? Mutterings from my mother as she put on her slippers in the dark. Don't worry, growled the old man in his familiar litany. Don't worry, I'll get up. I'm just resting a little bit. More mutterings. Look, I'm just resting my eyes. I'm going to get right up. For God's sakes, will you shut up? 
the vacation had begun, as it always began. Already not three minutes old, and it was imperceptibly inching downhill. Five minutes later, my mother, wearing her rump-sprung chenille Chinese red bathrobe with tiny flecks of petrified egg on the lapels, her eyes puffed sleepily, peering down at a pot of simmering oatmeal in the clammy kitchen. Outside in the darkness, a few sparrows clinging to telephone wires chirped drowsily, pretending that they were real birds and not just sparrows living in a steel mill town. My kid brother and I ran insanely up and down the basement stairs, dragging stuff out of the coal bin that we figured we might need at the lake. For over a month, I had been assiduously collecting night crawlers in a Chase and Sanborn coffee can. I brought them up from the basement to be ready to pack when the time came. Oh, I toyed with my oatmeal out of excitement. It was such a great day that I actually went ahead and ate some of it. My brother, who had been known to go for over two years without eating anything, was playing piggy in honor of the festive occasion. This was a game invented by my mother to euchre the little runt into eating. It consisted of my mother saying, Randy, how does the little piggy go, huh, huh? His nostrils would flare, his neck would thicken, his face redden. He would grunt <clears throat> twice and look for approval to my mother. <clears throat> nice piggy. Here, here's your trough, piggy. He would give another snort <clears throat> and then shovel his snout deep into the red cabbage and mashed potatoes or oatmeal or whatever it was and slurp it up loudly. Now, he wasn't a TV kid, obviously, either. This morning, in excitement, he polished off two troughs of Quaker oats usually his quota for a month. My mother, her hair curlers clinking, called out up the stairs, Are you up? Silence. Are you up? Silence. It's getting late. Shut up, for Christ's sake! Wearily, she bent back over the sink. She had been through this route before. A half an hour later, the sun streaming in through the kitchen windows finally flushed the old man out into the open. By now, the mound of impedimenta filled the kitchen and overflowed out into the back porch, his BVDs hanging limply. The old man weaved unsteadily between the piles and collapsed into a chair. Give me some coffee. He slumped, unshaven, staring numbly at the kitchen table until my mother set the coffee down in front of him. She did not speak. She knew that this was no time for conversation. He lit a lucky, took a mighty drag, and then sipped gingerly at the scalding black coffee, his eyes glaring malevolently ahead. My old man had begun every day of his life since the age of four with a lucky and a cup of black coffee. He inhaled each one alternately, grimly, deeply. During this routine, it was suicide to goad him. The sun rose higher and higher. It grew hotter and muggier, as only late July in northern Indiana can. The first faint whiff of oil refinery smoke and blast furnace dust eddied in through the screen door. Somewhere, a cicada screamed into the brightening haze. Clotheslines drooped. My brother and I were busy carrying bags, suitcases, and lumpy cardboard boxes with string tied on them out into the driveway. My mother wordlessly squeezed lemons for the lemonade we always carried along in our big two-gallon thermos, which leaked. The old man stonily began his second cup. Halfway through it, he suddenly looked up, the sun now well over the high-tension wires and striking him full on his stubbled face. Well, he shouted. Are we all set to go? This was the signal that the real action now would begin. The old man was still alive for another day. It was vacation time. He had been let out of the pen. My mother, picking up her cue, said, Well, everything's about set. Okay, give me that list. He roared around the kitchen, his BVDs flapping obscenely as he, re he rechecked the pile of rubber ducks, beach balls, old inner tubes, spy glasses, straw hats, fielder's mitts, accordions, all of it. He rushed into the bathroom to shave, and he emerged a few minutes later with a wad of toilet paper plastered to a nasty gash on his chin. As I said, he was no TV daddy. By now, we had moved perhaps a ton and a quarter of stuff out into the weeds of the backyard which at this time of the year was usually knee-deep, filled with green caterpillars and millions of stickers. As always, 
Mrs. Kissel peered wistfully from her kitchen window next door. Since Mr. Kissel never worked, the Kissel family never took vacations. The neighborhood dogs, sensing that something was afoot, scurried around and around the cardboard cartons, yipping. A couple of them did more than that. Piece by piece, carton by carton, every available inch of the back seat was packed solid. The old man had a Sears luggage rack clamped onto the roof of the olds. The heavy stuff was loaded on top, comforters, folding camp chairs, beach umbrellas, his set of matched Montgomery Ward golf clubs, all piled high and held down with lengths of clothesline. Those wooden-handled, chrome-headed clubs represented his only foray into the magic world of the big people, as he called them, the ones who ran Chevy agencies and sauntered around the course on Sundays in checkered knickers. At last, he crawled in behind the wheel, rolled down the window, and peered out over a pile of junk next to him to see if my mother was in place. Back in the rear, my brother and I were wedged into two tiny cockpits burrowed into the wall of tightly packed essentials for living. My mother, for some reason, always pretended that going to Clear Lake was something like traveling to the North Pole. You had to be ready for everything. The doors were slammed, windows adjusted, and finally the old man gave his yearly cry, Okay, here we go! Outside in the yard, a motley collection of well-wishers had gathered, including Flick, Schwartz, Kissel, and other small fry who moved in the substrata of kid life, nameless, noses running, never invited to play ball. The old man turned the key in the dash and stepped on the starter. From deep within the bowels of the Oldsmobile came a faint click, and that was all. He jabbed again at the starter. Click! His neck reddened. Oh, for Christ's sake, that damn starter spring stuck again. God damn it! The sun beat down mercilessly on our wheeled pyramid, the interior growing hotter by the second. Enraged, the old man threw the door open and ran around to the front of the owls, shouting, When I turn on the key, when I jump up and down on the, on the bumper, turn the key on, okay? He grabbed the radiator ornament a shoddy copy of the Winged Victory, climbed up on the bumper and began to bounce maniacally up and down. It was a routine we all knew well. The old man, his face beat red, the blood once again dripping from his gashed chin, hopped up and down on a, in a frenzy. Once again, from deep within the olds, came another faint, a very faint click. Instantly, the old man shouted, Don't nobody move! Don't move! Sit still, real still. He tore around the side of the car and eased himself carefully into the driver's seat. It was a touchy moment. Carefully, so as not to create the slightest vibration, he pushed the starter button on the floor. Gug, 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 gug. Gug, 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 gug. It failed to catch. The old man whispered hoarsely, Don't nobody breathe. He tried it again. Gug, 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 gug. Boom! Ah, the mighty six-cylinder, low-compression Oldsmobile engine rattled into life. Rocker arms clattering, valve springs clanging, pistons slapping. After all, 142,000 miles isn't exactly around the block. He threw her into reverse, and slowly she lumbered backward down the driveway, swaying under the immense load of half of the available stock of the A&P. Safely out on the street, he threw her into first. Painfully, she began to roll forward. I peered out of the tiny crack of window available to me, a square of glass no more than three inches across, and I saw my assembled friends standing dumbly along the sidewalk. For a brief instant, I felt a deep pang of regret about all the great things that were going to happen in the neighborhood while I was gone. From somewhere off to my left, amid the rumblings of the olds, I heard the first muffled squeakings of my kid brother. Two minutes later, we turned down a side road toward the main highway that wended its way listlessly past junkyards and onion patches toward the distant, rolling, sandy hills of Michigan. It was Sunday, and already a solid line of automobiles, bumper to bumper, stretched from one horizon to the other, barely moving. 
The old man, his eyes narrowed with hatred, glared through the windshield at his most ancient and implacable foe, traffic. Damn Sunday drivers, stupid sons of bitches. He was warming up for the big scenes yet to come. As traffic fighters go, he was probably no more talented nor dedicated than most other men of his time. But what he lacked in finesse, he more than made up for in sheer ferocity. His vast catalog of invective, learned in the field, so to speak, back of the stockyards on the south side of Chicago, had enriched every Sunday afternoon drive we took. Some men gained their education about life at their mother's knee, others by reading yellowed volumes of fiction. I nurtured and flowered in the back seat of the olds, listening to my father. At last we were on our way. No one could deny that. We crept along in the great line of Sunday traffic, the olds muttering gloomily as its radiator temperature slowly mounted. My mother occasionally shouted back through the din in our direction, Are you kids all right? All right. I was out of my head with excitement. I looked forward to this moment all year long. It made Christmas and everything else pale to nothing. I had pored over every issue of Field and Stream in the barber shop, dreaming about tracking beavers and fording streams and making hunters stew. Of course, nobody ever did any of those things in Michigan, but they were great to read about. One time, our scoutmaster took us out on a hike through Holman, and painted moss on the north side of the fire plugs so that we could blaze a trail to the vacant lot behind the Sherwin-Williams sign. But that was about the extent of my expertise in nature lore. Hour after hour, we inched northward and finally burst out of the heavy traffic and turned onto the rolling open highway that led through the sandy hills to Marcellus, Michigan. By now, it was well along in the afternoon, and the temperature inside the car hovered at maybe... Fifteen or twenty degrees below the boiling point. The olds had a habit of hitting a thrumming, resonant vibration at about fifty that joggled the bones, loosened the molars, rattled the eyebrows, and made all talk totally impossible. But over the roar, a faint squeak filtered through the cartons to my left. My mother turned in her seat, took one look, and shouted at the old man to stop the car. What the hell now? he bellowed. As he pulled over to the side of the road under a pair of great overhanging Michigan poplars, everywhere around us in the yellow and dun fields mottled with patches of grapevines stretched out to the horizon, the rich, lush land of Michigan. My mother dashed around the side of the car to my brother's door. I heard him being hauled out of his tiny capsule, oatmeal, ovaltine, caterpillars, everything he had downed in the past couple of days gushed out into the lilies. I sat in my slot, peering out of the window at the alien landscape, my excitement now at fever pitch. Randy always got sick right about this point. That meant we were halfway there. Ashen-faced, he was stuffed back into his hole. Once again, the starter spring stuck. Once again, the old man raged up and down on the bumper. Then we were off. It was then that the bombshell really hit. Oh, no. Oh, no. I slumped deep down into the seat, a two-pound box of rice sliding from the shelf behind me and pouring its contents down the back of my neck. The Oldsmobile boomed on towards Clear Lake and its fighting three-ounce sunfish, its seven-inch bluegills, and its five-inch perch, all waiting for me under lily pads beside submerged logs on the weed beds. Oh, no! No! I had left all my fishing tackle in the garage piled up next to the door, and also including the old man's fishing tackle. It was my responsibility. I remembered now. I left it in the garage. Dad! I cried out in anguish. The great thrum of the olds drowned me out. Hey, Dad! He glanced into the rearview mirror. Yeah? I left all our fishing tackle in the garage. What? He straightened up in his sweat-soaked pongee shirt. You did what? I... I... Oh, for Christ's sake, what next? He spit through the open window into the onrushing hot air. 
the spit arced back into the rear window and missed my brother's head by a quarter of an inch. My mother had been asleep now for some time. She never stirred through this entire disaster. Deep in my hole, I wept silently to myself. The steady, rumbling oscillation of the ancient olds rolled back over me, way down deep inside the first faint gnawings of car sickness, like some tiny, gray, beady-eyed rat began scurrying among my vitals, merged appropriately with the disappointment and the heat. A faint whiff of the Swedish sour aroma of my kid brother filtered through the camp gear, drifting past my nose and out the window to my right. I stared with glazed eyes at the blur of telephone poles, at a barn with a huge bull Durham sign on its side, with its slogan, Her Hero, at a farmhouse, and another farmhouse, and then a rusty tin sign with the faded message, Hooked Rugs for Sale, Also Eggs. The low hills, green, yellow, and brown, wound on and on and on. I had wrecked the vacation. You might just as well tell Santa Claus to go to hell as leave your split bamboo casting rod that you saved all year to buy and that had a cork handle and a level wine Sears Roebuck reel with a red jewel in the handle and your daredevil wiggler, so red and white and chromey, you left them back in the garage amid the bald good years and empty Simonized cans. Oh, well, nothing ever works out anyway. My little gray furry rat reared on its hind legs, his fangs flashing in the darkness. Car sickness was about to strike. Over the steady hum of the mighty Ole's engine, I could hear the painful keening of my kid brother, who was now burrowed down into the floorboards almost in his travail. I stared sullenly out the window over a huge, rolled-up, dark green comforter and an orange crate full of coffee pots and frying pans. Suddenly, Balloom! The car reeled drunkenly under the wrenching blows of a disintegrating Allstate tire with 74,000 miles on it. In the front seat, the driver wrestled with the heaving steering wheel. Overloaded by a quarter ton at least, the car continued to lurch forward. Ding, 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 ding. It was now down to the rim. My father hauled back on the emergency brake. The car slewed up the gravel shoulder of the highway and rolled to a limping stop. He cut the ignition. But for a full twenty seconds or so, the motor continued to turn over. It continued to fire on sheer heat alone. Finally, she coughed twice and stopped. Dead silence enveloped us all. My father sat unmoving behind the wheel, his hands clenched on the controls in silent, white-knuckled rage. Do you think it's a flat? My mother chirped helplessly, her quick mechanical mind analyzing the situation with deadly accuracy. No, I don't think it could be that. Possibly we ran over a pebble or two. His voice was low, almost inaudible, drenched in sarcasm and hate. Oh, I'm glad to hear that, she sighed with relief. I thought for a minute we might have a flat. He stared out his window at the seared corn stalks across the road, watching the corn borers destroy what was left of the crops after the locusts had finished their work. We sat for possibly two minutes, frozen in time and space like flies in amber. Then, in the lowest of all possible voices, he breathed toward the cornfield. Balls! Very quietly, he opened the door, climbed out, and stalked back to the trunk. All of you, get out! God damn it! He shouted. My mother, realizing by this time that it hadn't been a pebble after all, whispered, Now don't get on his nerves. Don't whine. The four of us gathered on the dusty gravel. Along the road behind us, for a quarter mile at least, chunks of black twisted rubber smoked in the sun and marked our trail of pain and what was left of the Allstate. The old man silently opened the trunk, peered into the tangled mess of odds and ends that always filled it, and began to rummage glumly among the shards. He removed the clamp that released the spare tire. In his world, spare tires were tires that had long since been given extreme unction but had somehow 
clung to a just a tiny thread of life and perhaps a shred or two of rubber. Next, the jack. We sat at a safe distance next to the cornfield in the shade of an elm tree, suffering from oak blight, an almost impossible situation. Let's have a picnic while Daddy fixes the tire, suggested Mother cheerfully. Daddy, his shirt drenched in sweat, tore his thumbnail off while trying to straighten out the jack handle, which was insanely jointed in four different spots, making it as pliable as a wet noodle and about as useful. While he cursed and bled, we opened the lunch basket and fished out the warm cream cheese sandwiches and the lunch meat and relish sandwiches. Give me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, said my kid brother. We don't have peanut butter and jelly, Randy. I want a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Well, we have nice tuna and egg salad sandwiches on rye bread. You can pick the seeds out and have fun making believe they're little bugs. I want peanut butter and jelly. Randy's voice was rising to a shrill pitch. Off in the middle distance, the jack clanked and rattled as the olds teetered precariously on the flimsy metal support. God damn it, in two seconds, I'm going to come over and bat you one good, yelled the tire repairman. Randy threw his tuna salad sandwich out of the road, where it was instantly smashed flat by a Mack truck. Our little picnic went on. We drank lemonade. We ate broken cookies. Finally came the call. Okay, pile in. How about some music, my mother asked rhetorically as we rolled out into the highway. My father stonily drove on. Sometimes after a particularly bad flat, he didn't speak to the family for upwards of two weeks. I suspect that he always pictured heaven as a place where everybody was issued a full set of brand-new four-ply U.S. Royal Roadmasters, something he never once in his life attained, at least on this earth. My mother fiddled with the car radio, which hummed and crackled. Roll out the barrel, we'll have a barrel of fun. Roll out the barrel, we've got the blues on the run. The Andrews sisters were always rolling out barrels and having fun. Isn't that nice? How about playing a game, kids? What, kids? Let's play a game now. Come on. What am I thinking of? Animal, vegetable, or mineral? We always played dumb games in the car, like who could tell quicker what kind of car was coming towards us, or count the number of cows, or Beaver, where the first guy who saw a red truck or a blue Chevy or a Coca-Cola sign would hit the other guy if he hollered Beaver first. Then there was Padiddle, which was generally played when there were girls in the car and had a complicated scoring system involving burned-out headlights, the highest point-getter being a police car running one-eyed. But Padiddle was never played in cars carrying mothers and kid brothers. Now what the hell? My father had broken his vow of silence. Ahead, across the highway, stretched a procession of sawhorses with flashing lights and arrows and a sign reading, Road Construction, Detour Ahead, 27.8 Miles. Muttering obscenities, the old man veered to the right onto a slanting gravel cow path Giant bulldozers and road graders roared all around us. Holy God, this is going to kill that spare! The olds crashed into a hole. The springs bottomed. She bellowed forward, throwing gravel high into the air. The trail wound through a tiny hamlet. And then a fork where a red arrow pointed to the right. Continued detour. The road to the left was even narrower than the other, marked with a battered black-and-white tin sign perforated with rusting twenty-two caliber bullet holes. County Road 872, alternate. We fishtailed to a stop, yellow dust pouring in the windows. Give me that map. The old man reached across the dashboard and snapped open the glove compartment just as a truck rungled past, raining gravel under the windshield along the side of the car. What the hell is this? He yanked his hand convulsively out of the glove compartment. It dripped a dark, viscous fluid. Okay, he said with his best Edgar Kennedy slow burn. Okay. Who stuck a Hershey bar in the glove compartment? No one spoke. All right, who did it? He licked his fingers disgustedly. 
What a goddamn mess. The mystery of the Hershey bar was a subject of bitter wrangling off and on for years afterward. I know that I didn't stick it in there. If my brother had gotten a hold of a Hershey bar, he would have eaten it instantly. It never did come out, but then neither did the chocolate. Furthermore, the Oldsmobile, forever, had a chocolate-lined glove compartment. My father poured over the creased and greasy map, licking chocolate from his thumb. Aha! 872. Yes, here it is. It goes through East Jerusalem and hits 438. Yeah. I'll tell you what, I bet we can beat this detour by crossing through 438 to this one with the dotted red line, 974. And then we'll cut back and hit the highway the other side of Niles. Two and a half hours later, we were up to our hubs in a swamp. Overhead, four large crows circled angrily at the first disturbance their wilderness had had in over three centuries. After backing and filling for half an hour, we finally managed to regain semi-solid ground on the corduroy road that we had been thumping over for the past hour or so. None of us spoke. We long ago had learned not to say a word in times like this. Our spattered, battered hulk hauled itself at long last back onto the main highway after traveling over patches of country that had not been seen by the eye of man since early Indian times. I knew I'd beat that damn detour. When my father had really loused up, he always tried to pretend it was not only deliberate, but had been a lot of fun. Did you kids see those big crows? Wow, weren't they big? And I'll bet you never saw quicksand before, right? Well, that was something, wasn't it? Leaving a trail of mud, we rumbled along smoothly for a few minutes on the blessed concrete. How about some of those Mary Janes? Would you kids like some Mary Janes? Now the old man was in a great mood. My mother scratched around in the luggage a few minutes, and she found a cellophane bag full of the dentist's delight. Be careful how you chew them now, she cautioned us, because if, if you're not, they'll pull your fillings out. The sound of the munching was drowned out by the brrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrr
It carried with it chicken feathers and other byproducts that streamed back from the truck ahead. But this was not the first time we've been caught behind moving livestock. A load of ducks make chickens a pure joy. And one time, we'd been trapped for over four hours behind 37 sheep and at least 200 exuberantly ripe porkers on U.S. 41. The rain suddenly stopped. But when the menagerie boomed into a turnoff, and peace reigned once again, a few feathers clung to the headlights here and there, but the last lingering aroma of the barnyard finally departed through the rear window. And then... I got a wee-wee. All right, but this is the last time, you hear? No answer. Randy was promising nothing. Ahead, a one-pump gas station crouched amid the cornfields, next to a white shack that had once been a diner, but was now sinking into the clay, carrying with it its faded red signs with the single word, Eat. Under a rusted soft-drink cooler sprawled a mangy hound, who greeted our arrival by opening one roomy eye and lifting a leg to scratch wearily and indiscriminately at his undernourished room and borders. We pulled up next to the pump. A thin, creased, dusty old man wearing a blue work shirt and faded jeans sat chewing a toothpick beside a screen door on an oil drum next to a wooden chair. Why he sat on the drum, who knows? The drum said, Philip 66. He didn't stir. Fill her up, bub. You want want gas? He clipped it out. Kid's got to go to the toilet. He shifted the toothpick. It's around the side, back around them tires, back in the weeds. You can check the oil while we're waiting. Check the oil. Taking one foot off the oil drum, then the other, the old man shuffled to his feet with painful deliberation. He walked over to the car and fiddled with the hood latch for a minute or so. Finally, getting the knack of it, he yanked it open, leaned over the engine, pulled out the dipstick, and held it up. It dripped rich, viscous sludge onto the gravel. Needs about two and a half quarts. It always needed two and a half quarts. You want the good stuff or the cheap stuff? The cheap stuff. Put in the heaviest you got. The old crate burned oil like a diesel. Just put in what you got. My brother and Randy were back in the car now. It was a typical pit stop on our long caravan route to Clear Lake and Paradise. Doggedly, we swung back out into the highway. Randy relieved, the olds refreshed. A mile up the road, my mother, making conversation, said, uh, Say, uh, why didn't you get gas? I didn't want any of that cheap bootleg gas that guy had. I'm waiting for a Texas Blue station. The gas gauge says empty. Maybe you should have got some. Oh, come on, that gas gauge is cockeyed. When it says empty, there's over an eighth of a tank left. There ought to be a Texas Blue station ahead not far. Texas Blue was an obscure gasoline that had at one time sponsored the Chicago White Sox ball games on radio, thereby winning my father's undying patronage. If Texas Blue backed the White Sox, it was his gas. He would have used it if they distilled it from old cabbages. Thirty seconds later, the car sputtered to a stop. Bone dry. Out of gas. After sitting stony-eyed for a long time behind the wheel, the old man silently opened the door, got out, slammed it, opened the trunk, took out the red can he always carried and continually used, slammed the lid shut, and set out without a word for the gas station we had left a mile and a half behind. He plodded over the horizon and was gone. We played animal, vegetable, or mineral, and drank more warm lemonade while we waited in the steamy heat. Forty minutes later, he returned, his two-gallon can filled to the brim with gas so cheap you could hear it knocking in the can. He smelled heavily of both gasoline and bourbon. He poured the gas into the tank, and shortly thereafter, we once again entered the mainstream of humanity. A single red sign stuck on the road shoulder at a crazy angle whizzed by. In white letters, it read, Listen, birds! My father lit another lucky and leaned forward on the alert, peering through the bug-spattered windshield. These signs cost money! The second red and white announcement flashed by, followed quickly by the third. So roost a while! Oh, <laughs> that's a joke, son. The old man flicked his match out the side window, his neck craning in anticipation of the snapper. We drove on. 
working on. Had some crummy, rotten fiend stolen the punchline of the Burma shave signs? Another sign loomed over the next hill. He squinted tensely. Genuine cherry cider for sale. Ah, for Christ's sake, he muttered amid the thrumming uproar and the constant ping of kamikaze gnats and beetles on the spattered windshield. But finally it came. Half hidden next to a gnarled oak tree at the far end of a long sweeping curve, the last sign appeared. But don't get funny. I didn't get it. But then I didn't get much of anything in those days. A few yards farther up, the sponsor's name flashed by, Burma Shave. Up front, the old man cackled appreciatively. His favorite form of reading were Burma Shave signs next to the Chicago Herald-Tribune sports section, Burma Shave signs. He could recite them like a Shakespearean scholar quoting first folios. He had just added another gem to his vast repertoire. In the months to come, it would be referred to over and over, complete the location, time of day, and pertinent weather information when he had read the signs. In fact, he and his pal Zudok even invented their own Burma shave signs, pungent, unprintable, and certainly triple, double, sometimes even single entendre. It might have been a great ad campaign if the Burma shave company had the guts to do it. It began to rain again. My father rolled up the window part way. Normally, the atmosphere in the holds in full cry was a faint, barely discernible blue haze, an aromatic mixture of exhaust fumes from the split muffler, a whiff of manifold heat, burning oil, sizzling grease, dust from the floorboards, alcoholic steam from the radiator, and the indescribably heady aroma of an antique tangerine left over from last year's trip that had rolled under the front seat and had gotten wedged directly in front of the heater vent. Now, subtly blended with this oleo were the heavenly scents of wet hay, tiger lilies, yellow clay, and fermenting manure. Ahead of us, a house trailer towed by a Dodge drifted from side to side as they, too, rumbled on toward two weeks away from it all. The old man muttered, lousy Chicago drivers. A litany he repeated over and over to himself endlessly while driving, Chicago drivers. It must have had the same sort of soothing effect on him that prayer wheels and mystic slogans had on others. He firmly believed that almost all accidents, directly or indirectly, were caused by Chicago drivers. And if they could all be barred at birth from getting behind a wheel, cars could be made without bumpers, and the insurance companies could turn their efforts into more constructive channels. Look at that nut! The old man muttered to himself as the house trailer cut across the oncoming lane and rumbled out of sight of a gravel road, traveling fast and hard with a thick cloud of yellow dust behind it. My mother was now passing out Wrigley's spearmint chewing gum. This'll keep you from getting thirsty, she counseled sagely. We were doing well, all things considered, having stopped for Randy only at 75 gas stations so far. After licking off the sweet, dry coating of powdered sugar, I chewed the gum for a while and leafed restlessly through a Donald Duck big little book that I'd brought along to pass the time. But I was too excited and kind of sick to worry about old Donald and Dewey and Huey and Louie. Suddenly the uproar in the front seat roared back over us. I sat up. My mother screamed and shrank away towards the door. The old man shouted above her shrieks, For Christ's sake, it's only a bee! It's not going to kill you! It's just a bee! A big fat bumblebee zoomed over the pots and pans and groceries, banging from window to window as my mother, flailing her tattered copy of True Romance, cowered, screaming on the floorboards next to the gear shift. The bee zoomed low over her, banked sharply upward, and began walking calmly up the inside of the windshield like he knew just what he was doing. Every year, a bee got in the car. The same bee. My mother had an insane fear of being stung. She had read in Ripley's Believe It or Not that a bee sting had killed a man named Howard J. Detweiler in Canton, Ohio, and she never got over it, never. The subject came up around our house all the time, especially in the summer, and my mother invariably quoted Ripley, who was universally recognized as the ultimate authority on everything. She screamed again, God damn it, shut up! Do you want me to have an accident? My father bellowed. He pulled off to the side of the road, flung his door open, and began the chase. Give me the rag out of the side pocket, he yelled. 
My mother, shielding her head with her magazine, interrupted her whimperings long enough to shriek, Where is he? Where is he? I can hear him! The bee strolled casually up the windshield a few inches farther, humming cheerfully to himself. The old man tore around to the other side of the car to get the rag. Sensing that he had made his point, the bee revved his motors with a loud buzz and was out the window. He disappeared back down the road and into the towering skies of early evening, obviously getting set for the next Indiana car to show up over the hill. He was working this part of the track. He got away, the bastard. My father slid back into the seat, threw the oils into gear, and pulled back out into the asphalt. Okay, he's gone. You can get up now, for God's sakes. His voice dripped with scorn. My mother crawled back up into her seat, flushed and shaking slightly, and she said in a weak voice, Oh, you never could tell about bees. I read... My father snorted in derision. Yeah, Howard J. Detweiler. I'd like to know where that goddamn bee stung him that killed him. I bet I know where it got him, he roared. Shh, the kids are listening. Hey, look, there's Crystal Lake, my father pointed off to the left. I sat bolt upright. Way off, past a big gray farmhouse and a bank of black trees under a darkening sky, was a tiny flash of water. A gravel road slanted off into the trees, bracketed by a thicket of signs, Boats for rent, bathing, fishing, overnight cabins, beer, eats. We were in vacation land. Oh, boy. In the back seat, I had broken out into a frenzied sweat. In just a few minutes, we would be there at the one and only place where everything happened. Clear lake. For months, when the snow piled high around the garage and the Arctic wind whistled past the blast furnaces into the open hearth and around the back porch, under the eaves, and through the cracks to the window sills, I had lain in my solitary pallet and dreamed of Clear Lake, imagining myself flexing my magnificent split bamboo casting rod, drifting toward the lily pads where a huge bronze back, an evil, legendary, small-mouthed bass named Old Jake, waited to meet his doom at my hands. I could see myself showing my dad how to tie a royal coachman fly, which I had read about in Sports Afield. He would gasp in astonishment. I also astounded my mother in these dreams by demonstrating an encyclopedic grasp of camp cookery. I had practically memorized an article entitled, How to Prepare the Larger Game Fish. The text began, a skillful angler knows how to broil landlocked salmon and take lake trout into the 25 to 40 pound weight range, fillet them nicely, and I had never seen, let alone cooked a salmon or a trout or a pike or anything else except for a tiny sunfish or a perch or a bullhead and the wily crappy. But I was ready for those big ones, the biggies. We rounded a familiar curve and rolled past a green cemetery dotted with drooping American flags. Steaming, the old slowed to a crawl as we inched past the general store, with a cluster of yellow cane poles leaning against its wooden front amid a pile of zinc wash tubs. We had arrived. Now look, kids, you stay in the car. Hey, Ollie! Ollie! The old man shouted out of the side window toward the feed store. Hey, Ollie! We're here! Through the rain-spattered windshield, we could see that a few lights were on here and there in the ramshackled white clappered buildings overhung with willows and sweeping elm trees that lined the street. A tall figure in overall strolled across the sidewalk and plunked his size 14 clodhopper on the running board. Battered farmer's straw hat pushed to the back of his head. My God, you made it! His Adam's apple the size of a baseball bobbed up and down in his skinny neck like a yo-yo. Yep, we're here, Ollie. How was the trip? Pretty good. Got a bee in the car, though. Oh, I know that bee just before you hit Crystal Lake. That's right. Just before you come to Henshaw's barn, right? Yep. God darn that son of a gun's been doing that all summer. He got me twice, you know, and I live here. Think he'd give us a break here, being natives and all. Ollie owned six cabins on the shore of Clear Lake, which was rimmed solidly with a thick incrustation of summer shacks. 
except at the north end where the lake was swampy and the mosquitoes swarmed. I saved the green one for you. She's all set. I emptied out the boat this morning. She's ready to go. A jolting shot of excitement ripped through me. The boat, our boat, which I would row and anchor and bail out and hang on to and cast my split bamboo rod. My split bamboo rod. Oh, I'd forgotten for hours that I'd left it back in the garage. Oh, God. How's the fishing this year? asked the old man. Ollie squinted up into the sun. Well, funny thing you ask, you know. They sure were hitting up. They were hitting up to about a week or ten days ago, hitting good. Guy from Mishawaka staying in cabin three got his limit of walleye every day. Every day he'd go out and in five minutes he'd have that walleye just piled up there next to the cabin. But they slacked off about a week ago. Ain't hitting at all now. I guess I should have been here last week. It was always last week at Clear Lake. They might hit crickets. I got some crickets for sale. Well, I'll be over in the morning to pick some up, Ollie. I got a feeling we're going to hit them big this year. The old man never gave up. We turned off the main highway and drove along the beloved twisting dirt road, now a river of mud, that led through cornfields and meadows down toward the magical lake. Ollie looks skinnier, my mother said. Oh, he's just got new overalls, my father answered, slewing the owls around a sharp bend. Night was coming on fast, as it does in the Michigan Lake Country, black and chill. The rain had picked up. In the back seat, I was practically unconscious with excitement as the first cottages hove into view. Between them and the trees that ringed them was the dark, slate void of the lake. She looks high, my father said. He always pretended to be an expert on everything, including lakes. Already, my mother was plucking at pickle jars, Brillo pads, clothespins, rolls of toilet paper, and other drifting odds and ends of stuff that she had banked around her in the front seat. Next to every cottage but one was a parked car, pulled up under the trees. Down on the lake, I could make out the pier and the black swinging wedges of Ollie's leaky wooden rowboats. A few yellow lights gleamed from the dark cottages onto the green, wet leaves of the trees. Well, there she is. Our light swept over the rear of a starboard-leaning, green-shingled, screen-enclosed cabin. Above the back door, painted in a weathered two-by-four, was the evocative appellation Haven of Bliss. All of Ollie's cottages had other names. For example, Bide a Wee was the big blue one down by the lake. Rest a spell was the one over by the ice house. Do drop in. We stayed there once. That was down under the trees there. Never care, spelled N-E-V-A. Never care. And sun and fun. This year we were in the haven of bliss. We inched under the trees. My father switched off the oles. With a great gasping shudder, she sank into a deep stupor, her yearly trial by fire half over. She was resting now. The rain was coming down hard, pounding on the roof of the car and dripping off the trees all around us. I tumbled out of the back door, plunging into mud up to my ankles and began sloshing my way through the wet bushes and undergrowth to the lake. Behind me I could hear my kid brother already whining that the mosquitoes were biting him. There at my feet, lapping quietly at the rocks, the black water faintly aglow, was Clear Lake. In the darkness a few feet offshore, I could dimly make out our wooden boat, the waves lapping against its side. Clunk, ka-thunk, ka-splat, plop, plop. One of the most exciting sounds known to man, the sound of a lake lapping against a wooden rowboat. Hey, come on, we gotta unload. Everybody's, everything's getting wet. Let's get down here. My father shouted through the trees. I slogged back up the path, slopping and slipping and skidding and cracking my shins against tree stumps. My father and mother were tugging at the tarpaulin that covered the luggage rack on the roof. The rain poured down unrelentingly. Where the hell's the flashlight? Don't tell me we forgot the goddamn flashlight. I thought you brought it. My mother answered. 
from the dark deluge. Oh, Jesus Christ, what did we bring? Look at this stuff, and we don't even have a flashlight. Well, you made up the list. How the hell can you forget the flashlight? Well, if you had gotten up when you said you would, you... Will you shut up? I don't have any time to argue. This stuff's getting soaked. My mother disappeared into the cabin. The lights aren't working, she called out into the rain a moment later. My father didn't even bother to answer that one. If she had said the roof was gone and there was a moose in the bedroom, it wouldn't have surprised him. He staggered past me, reeling under an enormous cardboard box full of pots, pans, baking powder, rubber ducks, and ping-pong paddles. Don't just stand around, do something, he bellowed everybody within hearing. Damn it, do I have to do everything here? I grabbed a beach ball from the back seat, waded through the clay, and groped my way up the rickety back steps. Inside, the cabin smelled of rotting wood, wet shingles, petrified fish scales, and dead squirrels. My father had struck a match, which dimly lit up the worn linoleum and bare boards of the kitchen. Why the hell didn't Ollie turn on the juice? That's what I want to know. What the hell? He raged, flicking his match around in the darkness. Hey, here's a kerosene lantern, my mother said excitedly. Above the tin sink on a shelf stood a dusty glass lamp half full of cloudy yellow oil. Ouch! Damn it! Damn it! The match had burned down to the old man's thumb. Sound of fumbling and scratching and cursing in the darkness. Finally, another match flared. Give me that lousy lamp. He lifted off the black, smoky chimney and applied the match to the wick, turning up the knob on the side as he did so. It sputtered and hissed. Don't breathe on the match, he yelled. Don't breathe. At last, the wick caught hold and a steady blue-yellow flame lit up the primitive kitchen. We rushed out into the dark and for the next hour lugged wet sacks, bags, blankets, fielders, mitts, all of it into the kitchen until at long last a ton and a half lighter the old shook itself in relief and settled down for a two-week rest. My mother had been sorting it all out as we dragged it in, carrying blankets and bedding into the little wooden cubicles that flanked the kitchen. When it was all indoors, the old man stripped off his soaked shirt and sprawled out on a lumpy blue kitchen chair. Well, here we are, gang. He grinned, water dripping down over his ears. Here we are. Boy, am I hungry. Wow. My mother had already opened a can of Spam. We sat amid the boxes, downing two-inch thick sandwiches. We got to set the alarm because we want to get out early to fish, announced the old man between bites. Set it for four o'clock in the morning. My kid brother already was asleep in the next room. If you want to get the big ones, the really big ones, you got to get up early. His eyes gleamed brightly in the glow of the kerosene lamp. They always bite good after a rain. This rain is good for fish. Yes, sir, it's good. But it was all back in the garage. My rod, my reel, my father's tackle box, his bobbers, his secret gypsy bait fish oil that he had bought from the mail-order catalog, all back in the garage. But, Dad, uh, don't you remember I, I, I told you I... I began miserably. So how come I found it on top of the car? I wondered who put all that fishing stuff on top of the car, huh? How did it get on top of the car? I guess somebody must have snuck up and put it on top of the car when you weren't looking, right? The old man had did it. Ten minutes later, I lay in the dark, ecstatic with relief and expectation. I had dodged the bullet. I huddled under damp blankets and a musty comforter. The rain roared steadily in a constant uproar on the roof as it would for the next two weeks and drummed metronomically onto the bare wooden floor beside my bed. Ka-thunk, 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 plop, ka-thunk, plop, ka-thunk, plop. This leak had been here for years. It knew what it was about to do. The boat called for me. Outside, from the dark lake, from somewhere out in the woods, something squeaked twice, and then was silent. My kid brother tossed and whimpered softly from beneath his pillow, and across the room my father's low, muttering snores thrummed quietly in the night. We were on vacation.